Hi, I'm Glenn Harper, CPA and owner of Harper & Company, CPAs Plus, and partner in Sula Consulting. In each episode, my co-host, Julie Smith, Harper & Company's practice manager and partner in Sula Consulting, and I will interview a different guest about their entrepreneurial journey. The podcast features interviews with business owners, a.k.a. entrepreneurs, who bring intriguing and entertaining clarity to the entire entrepreneurial journey, giving others confidence to build their business. Our goal is to provide actionable value to you, the entrepreneur, to help you do business or build a business. Every entrepreneur deserves to enjoy the journey. Learning from others offers valuable insight and inspiration. We want to provide insight on the why, the how, the shortcuts, and the value add that many entrepreneurs wish they would have had identified at the onset of their journey. Sit back and enjoy the journey. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Empowering Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm Glenn Harper. Julie Smith. What's going on, Julie? You know, uh, it's still warm here and it's supposed to be cold, so I'm going to take it. It's a beautiful day in Ohio, fall day. We don't get many of these, but this is why you live in Ohio. Maybe. Well, I mean, <laughs> maybe maybe summertime, but fall is just gorgeous. We've got the crisp mornings, beautiful fall foliage and uh, football. What more could one ask for? Probably our guest today. Well, there you go. What's that great segue, Julie? So we've got, uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Phil Whitman, a fellow CPA, means Certified Public Accountant, and a CEPA, C-E-P-A, which is a Certified Exit Planning Advisor, who not only eats, sleeps, and drinks tax code and FASB standards, but loves to empower other CPA firms to achieve their potential. He's the founder and owner of Whitman Trusted Advisors, C-Suite Impact, and is on the board of many of a company that need to fill a chair with an accountant-looking type guy. In all seriousness, Phil is, at the, is in the top 100 most influential people in accounting and is the man when it comes to bringing being an authority on helping CPA firms rise above their competition with not only better leadership within the company, but deliver a better client experience. Growing a CPA firm is hard, and Phil has made that look easy. Thanks, Phil, for being on our show. Oh, you're welcome, Glenn. And wow, I am just so impressed. Um, you guys, uh, you could do this full time. Uh, <laughs> no, that wouldn't be fun then. <laughs> no, it's it's so hard to uh, you know when we get we every once in a while we get lucky and get a really uh, a guest that just stands out in a different way. Everybody's got their own thing, but Phil, I think you're a little bit different. And uh, you know, we always like to get to know our our, our guests a little bit. And uh, you know, you're impossible to find anything. You've got yourself locked down. I tapped in the NSA and I couldn't find anything on you out there uh, personally, or you know sins from your past that are fun to talk about, but uh, I do know that your birthday's in April, and how the heck do you manage that in tax season? Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, the one good thing is none of my kids were born in April, but, uh, and my birthday was April 6th, and I was a tax guy. Um, I guess I got out at a good point in time, you know, I was a senior tax accountant and had a client that was leaned and levied by the IRS in New York State, and my firm sent me in to go in and straighten them out. And that's how my practice management career was born. It was originally with a, uh, a law firm whose uh, controller uh, went to Israel, sent a fax. She couldn't take the pressure. She wasn't coming back. And here you are. It, it's amazing the way things start. And I can remember my old firm saying, Phil, you're making a really big mistake. We make partners here at a really young age. And that law firm you're going to, you know, they don't have any money. They're all screwed up. And I was newly married and it was different. And it was fun. And I was running a law suite. And, um, you know, it uh, it really uh, ultimately was transformational. And the very interesting thing, that managing partner to this day uh, is a client at uh, Whitman Transition Advisors. And 
He was one of the ones that took a private equity investment. I meet with him every month. And uh, it's it's just uh, the way things come full circle. It's it's just pretty amazing. Funny how things work out, isn't it? Um, you know, it's one of these, the, the, the fun part about it is to try to figure out how you got where you got. And, you know, where were you, where were you raised? Where'd you grow up at? So I, I was born in Brooklyn, but, you know, my parents moved out to suburbs in New Jersey uh, by the time I was two years old. So I grew up in a small town, Matawan, New Jersey, central Jersey. Um, my high school produced some uh, tremendous football players, uh, Matawan Regional High School. We had a couple of guys that joined the uh, the Dallas Cowboys. One of my classmates was, you know, a Kansas City Chief, but you know how it goes with football players. What is it, an average of uh, two seasons and four two, games before an injury? And, 2.3, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2.3. So, uh, but in any event, um, you know, I, I, I grew up and I literally today live about four miles from the home that I was raised in. And um, it's it's just a nice bedroom community in Monmouth County, New Jersey. And it seems like, you know, the ability, I think you went to Rutgers, which is a great school. I mean, I don't know how you feel about getting in the Big Ten when they did, but it's pretty cool that, you know, the Big Ten goes sea to shining sea. But, uh, you know, you were economics degree. So how did you transition from economics to accounting? Well, believe it or not, when I went to Rutgers um, and I went to Rutgers College, which was in New Brunswick, New Jersey, they did not have an accounting degree. I graduated in 1984. And if you wanted to go into accounting, you had to um, major in economics. And then you did a specialization. So I did a specialization in finance and accounting. And I decided to go the accounting route. Uh, my father was a partner at Pricewaterhouse. And my uh, my grandfather owned a candy store. And my dad was the first one that went to college in our family. And my, my grandfather told my dad, you should be like Mr. Charles. You know, he comes to my luncheonette. And he's wearing a suit and a tie. And so my dad became a CPA, um, was a partner. Dad was always my idol. Uh, he would come home from work and tell these amazing stories of who he went to lunch with and where he went to lunch and the, you know, one of the things that that I'd say, and I'm a I'm passionate about this profession, and um, it, it's just that we've done a terrible job of educating the young folks. What an amazing, amazing career and profession this is, and I think it's because those um, dinner table stories uh, aren't being told. And there's a lot of secrets that are being kept. Uh, we just did a very bad job of educating the young folks. What a, what an amazing profession it is. I mean, I literally went into it because those compelling stories that I heard from my dad, I was like, okay, that's what I want to do. Well, you know, just talking with you, you're not the quote stereotypical CPA, which is very reserved and deep thinking and, and stoic and you don't talk and you're buttoned up and like, that's how, that's how they usually roll. And, and nobody wants to be like that, but I think the industry is definitely changing. I think you're trying to change it. We're trying to change it. And the, you can actually be an accountant and be a real person and talk and have a good time and, and help people 
but people just don't see it that way for some reason. It's a horrible marketing campaign. Well, and I think for the young younger generation, they're so scared of it because of that tax season. They The younger generation really wants that work-life balance, and no one's out there setting the record straight that you can have both. Yeah, and I think there are some middle market and smaller firms that have done an amazing job of rolling out the red carpet. I think the biggest challenge we face is we all know that the big four hire about 75 to 80 percent of all accounting graduates and their professors are typically saying, you know, go to the big four because that's what they know. And most of them never worked in public accounting. And yes, at the big four, you'll get a great training in years one, two, and three, but then you'll be highly specialized, you know, an inch wide and a mile deep. And when you look to transition to a middle market firm, if you're at the manager level, you know, sometimes it's a little bit of a challenge. Um, But I think that the smaller and middle market firms, that's that's the way to go. Because what happens, the big four hires all these people, They work them to death 80, 100 hours uh, a week, and they think this is what public accounting is about, and they leave and they never come back. Uh, I'm, I'm working with a partner, someone who spent 40 years at a big four firm, and he just joined one of our strategics, and as you know, nowadays in the M&A arena, it's not just CPA firm to CPA firm. We just closed a transaction with a wealth management fund, you know, and I'm sure we all saw, you know, the um, the, the Bergen firm that did a deal with uh, creative solutions, creative management, whoever it was. But we have all these new buyers in the marketplace. And this big four partner that I'm working with, as he's now been meeting small and middle market firms for potential investment by this giant wealth management group. He's like, we were so insular. All we know is the big four. And now I'm finding out that there's a whole nother world. And, you know, so he had to retire at 60. Mm -hmm. And I used to think 60 was old until I turned 60. (laughs) Um, And when I look at it, you know, as I mentioned, dad was a, partner at Pricewaterhouse. He was fortunate they extended him two years. He worked on a very large mutual fund and they were going to go out to bid unless they had Whitman. So uh, he stayed on, had one client for two years. But even still, I'm going to be 62 next April. And at 62, my dad faced mandatory retirement. Um I just feel like I am so vibrant and have so much more to give. And, you know, if I have health, you know, to just continue helping CPAs and firms, I, I, I just can't imagine. And I know one of the challenges, I go into firms. I have a firm I'm working with in, 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 in Naples, Florida, a 90-year-old practitioner, and he's got great clients. And it's small. It's a million-dollar book of business. But he's looking, he thinks it's time for him to begin to slow down. Slow down a little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He still wants to work though. And he does all the work, he does all the returns. And, you know, I know that for a firm 
we don't want those young kids coming in and seeing 80 and 90 year olds walking around because they're going to think, oh, my goodness, if I'm in this profession, is that what I'm going to have to be doing when I'm 80 or 90? But the reality is we're not digging ditches. We're not breaking our backs. Our hands aren't calloused. And as long as you have your brain, you know, this is a profession that I think it will enable you to stay lively. And I think, unfortunately, I've seen too many of my colleagues, partners, that they stop, and it's when they stop that they're... It's over. It's over. It turns to mush, you know? Well, Phil, I'm going to go back 50 years. I'm going to switch this dial. So go back 50 years, and you have these great idols that you look up to that do are doing great things, creating amazing stories. What did you do in your childhood? Were you just a natural entrepreneur as well? And you, you know, what did you do in your childhood that maybe could have impacted where you are today? You know, very, very perceptive of you, Julie. And and I, you know what, you bring me back. So when I was probably seven years old, um, I used to get this, uh, you know, in the magazine, it used to have all these offers in the back and send the self-addressed stamp, you know, pay for shipping and handling. So I walked my neighborhood and there was the American Seed Company. I sold seeds, flower seeds and vegetable seeds. When it snowed outside, me and my brothers, what we would do, we would walk around our neighborhood and we would knock on doors and we'd say, oh, we'll shovel your driveway for $5 or $10, depending how big it was. And we would hit every house and we would get their commitment that we would be doing the shoveling. And obviously you could only shovel one driveway at a time. But when the next kid went there, they said, oh, you know, we already hired Phil and David to do it. So like we, you know, so I shoveled snow, I mowed lawns. Um, even when I was in the public accounting profession, I always had a side business, you know, and it wasn't a tax practice. I did have a tax practice. I mean, I had a travel agency. I used to book people. I mean, I've always had this entrepreneurial itch. And there was a point in time after spending, I want to say, four or five years in public accounting uh, together with my brother, with my father's help. We put together a private placement memorandum. We raised $687,000 and we went out and we bought the franchise rights for Popeye's famous fried chicken and biscuits mm-hmm. in Suffolk County, Long Island. And we had a five-store contract. And I went from doing tax returns to rolling out biscuits and frying chicken. And we actually ended up, by the time I was 29 years old, I had run a multi-million dollar multi-restaurant franchise and filed bankruptcy. Um, we the, the recession of 1991, which Long Island, New York, led the country mm-hmm. in and um, lagged the country out. We always thought fast food would be recession-proof. But what started happening when Grumman had layoffs and Blue Point Labs closed people started brown bagging it and bringing it from home. And our average check was about $6.07. And for that amount of money in the 90s, you could go to a diner and sit down and get waitress service. So we started seeing an erosion of our sales. At one point, 
I stopped taking salary so that we could buy product. Let's put it this way. You ever hear the story of a three-day notice? Like when the sheriff shows up at your door and says something like, Mr. Whitman, you haven't paid your rent in three months. If you don't move your stuff out in three days, we're going to put your stuff on the street. Um, 29 years old. And except for the graces of God and the fact that I had parents and my wife had parents, my newly, we, I got married in 1991. This happened in 1991. My my bride, my newlywed bride and I, we would have been living in a washer dryer box or a refrigerator box on the side of the street. We packed up everything we had. We moved home. And back in 1991, 92, there weren't a lot of accounting jobs out there. And I was just very fortunate. I landed a per diem job at Citroen Cooperman two months February 15th to April 15th. They loved me. I love them. They've made me an offer. And actually, that was the firm when they sent me to a law firm to help them out. That's how my practice management career was born. So, you know, I, I, I'm i going to stop for a second, but I'm going to remember to add something else because I think so much of who you are and what you become is 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 a matter of mindset um and you either have an open mindset you have a mindset of doom and gloom and in the past i've done a series uh with with don hood i call it the fearful mindset and i think in the public accounting industry unfortunately too many of our brethren have that fearful mindset ultra conservative you you bring a couple amazing points that, as our listeners who are we believe are mostly entrepreneurs, is the fact that if you're going to do something, you got to go all in, and you went all in, and you you got the commitment, you did it, and you know sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. You didn't actually fail; you just pivoted and did something else, and you had a great support staff around you, meaning your family and friends to help you do that. People believed in you. A lot of entrepreneurs don't have that, and it makes it really really challenging. But as soon as you mentioned fried chicken, I could go for some honey, you know, spicy honey uh, chicken right now. That sounds really good. Oh, my gosh. Um, and you said something uh, a little bit earlier as well. You know, it, when you were young and you wait, were— Wait, wait, wait. Oh, go before, ahead. Before you go back again, I want to stay in the moment we're in. And I think, Phil, a lot of entrepreneurs see the peaks and the valleys and the peaks and the valleys. And I think usually people get stuck in those valleys. But I think to your point and your story is you learned how to crawl out of the peak or crawl out of the valley to get to the next peak. You never wanted to stay down there. You knew you couldn't. And I think your mindset, what you said about mindset is what's propelled you forward in your career and in your life. And I think that's a huge thing for entrepreneurs listening is don't stay where you are too long, right? Don't don't wallow in that. Figure out how to pivot, how to get out of it. And hey, maybe you go from fried chicken to uh, QuickBooks. I don't know how yeah. that works, but sound, sounds great. Yeah, the next day is another day and go up and slay it. Yes, and you used a great word, Julie. You said, don't wallow in it. And I always say, you could lay on the couch and cry and think, what if, what if? Or you pick yourself up by the bootstraps and you say, okay, where am I going next? What am I going to do next? Now, imagine this, in 1991, 92, there was no internet. 
there was something called the New York Times. And I remember the New York Times, the help wanted section. It used to be there, there, there were 20, 30 pages of job ads. And now all of a sudden, and I, None. my Sundays were spent going through every single ad and there weren't a lot of them. Um, and it was real challenging instead of it kind of enjoying being with my newlywed bride and saying, okay, when next in my life am I going to have a break? Now we did go to Bar Harbor and we had some adventures while I was looking. But, but the thing that I would tell you, I was like so laser beam focused on putting myself out there and, and doing, you know, you know, not laying on the couch and crying. Um, so, so yes, those peaks and valleys and, and I did, you know, I, I, I kind of experienced another valley, you know, uh, my, my foraying into practice management. I started with law firms. I spent six years helping law firms as their COO. And then I said, I'm a CPA. What am I doing in a law firm? I'll always be the hired help. Mm-hmm. And back in like 1997, CPA firms first started embracing the professional management of firms. And I landed a role with like a uh, $6 million firm with six partners, about a million dollar book each. And when they opened up their books to me and I saw how much these guys <clears throat> were earning, I picked up the phone and I called my dad. What I the said, heck? Dad, I'm working at this $6 million firm. You're a partner at Price Waterhouse. These guys, they, you know, they're making five, six hundred thousand dollars each. He said, "Yeah, just because it's a big four firm doesn't mean you make more money than all the, you know." There's plenty of smaller firms. What I've learned is public accounting has probably created more millionaires next door than our world knows about. And I think part of the thing, and and look, it's not all about the money, but you you know you know that thing they say money can't buy you happiness. Well, someone once said, yeah, but it makes the miserable times a little bit more easy to handle. Absolutely. You know, but but what, what I can tell you is some of the young folks out there, if they only realize the inheritance that has been created for them in the public accounting arena, you know, um, and, and, and there are entrepreneurial CPAs and CPA firms out there and, um, you know, it, it's just, it, it's such, there's such an amazing opportunity. And I was, I was glad to see the other day, Accounting Today had mentioned that accounting enrollment was up at Purdue University. Um, I myself, uh, uh, because I graduated from Rutgers, I've agreed to mentor a couple of students uh, that are in the business school there. Um, I've gone to uh, local high schools to talk about what an amazing uh, career this could be. Because I did audit, I did tax, I went into private, I ran restaurants, I ran law firms, I ran CPA firms, and now 15 years consulting with CPA firms. I mean, e- even if you just go and get an accounting degree and a CPA license, you're golden for the rest of your life, no matter what you do, so. Yeah, it's, it's funny, um, as the role as the CPA, if you're at a, a like a big four, you like you said, you're going to know one piece for probably one or two clients, and it's very you'll know knowledge of that piece. But when you work in a smaller firm and you're dealing with clients, you get to see everything, and so you're when you do the tax sweatshop thing for those first few years, you learn so much about everything that your knowledge base is so long, and you just you look and see what other people are doing, what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong. 
gives you a little bit more of an opportunity to to understand if you're going to be an entrepreneur. This is what you look for. You get to, you got to see all these clients, what they did right, what they did wrong. It's like your own little mutual fund. You get to pull the best out of it. And I think that's probably what you were doing, right? And and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, right? If we had a, you know, for every success, there's another one that just didn't make it. But it, for you, when you were doing this, like there had to be a calling. And was it the fact that when you went and worked, changed that firm and you were like, wait a minute, I'm seeing what these people are making. Was it the money opportunity or was it the opportunity to expand what you know and help others? What, what made you switch from wanting to work for the man to being the man? So, you know, I, I, I guess I've always, um, I've always had very thick skin and had the ability to let things roll off my shoulder and I'm sure if you imagine when you're in a role and whether they call you the director of administration, chief operating officer, or firm administrator. I know, like barista. She's barista. Barista. There you go. <laughs> and you can do that, too. Um, uh, you, you deal with a lot of things. I mean, everything comes across your plate. And it's and so, A, being a person that liked having a seat at the table and having my hands in so many different things. It was just, I guess, the the variety that I wasn't sitting there and, you know, I wasn't a controller or a CFO closing out, you know, month after month. Being the orchestra leader of uh, an administrative team, you know, and giving my partner group the ability to do what they do best. Um, so I've always been a people person, you know, um, someone comes in your office, they're upset. You got to calm them down. You got to be a little bit of a psychologist, you know, and, uh, you know, when do you invoke the 72 hour rule, which is, yeah, I understand you. Let's get together, you know, on Monday and clearly by Monday, everything has kind of calmed down and we don't have to do what, you know, take, take harsh action. Uh, but in any event, I think it was the diversity of of you know just running a business and I always did it in such a way that hey I could save you money I'm a tax guy the first firm I went into you know unfortunately they were able to hey we don't need you to prepare the tax return and do all this accounting work all we need you to do is review it because fellow's going to do this now um you know so I always went into these roles with the idea of I'm going to be a profit center for you because it's going to ultimately end up costing you nothing to have me because I'm going to save you money in ways that you never thought of. I always went in as if I was the outsider, a consulting coming in and looking under the hood and being a fixer. And then I felt like when I fixed things, it was time to move on. So I went from a $6 million firm to an $18 million firm, and it was all healthcare and not-for-profits. And I helped them grow to $30 million, And then I got a call and someone said, I got a $60 million firm for you. And you know, I joined that firm and after six years, helped them grow to 100 million. We went from 300 people to 400 people, 38 partners to 48 partners. And then a series of life events. And I think there's always something that puts you uh, into a whether it's your true north direction or another direction. My mom was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. My middle son, who was 10 years old, um, was 
diagnosed he had a very large uh, arachnoid cyst uh, on the left temporal lobe of his brain. And here I am running a firm that's almost 100 million in revenue. And I'm going to world-class brain surgeons and cancer treatment centers. And I had an amazing team. And that amazing team was able to, even if I didn't come in until 3 or 4 p.m. to get the stuff I needed to get done, things were operating seamlessly. Almost so seamlessly that in my mind, I was thinking, these guys are going to think, what do we need Phil for? But in any event, um, you know, my mom passed away after a one-year battle with multiple myeloma. My son, thank goodness, and to this day, you know, the the event, which I believe was, um, you know, amusement park rides rattling the brain a little bit too much that caused, you know, a, a little, this is something congenital he was born with, but, you know, everything settled down. Um, and I was laying in bed one night and my oldest son, it was the night before his middle school graduation. And I said to my wife, I can't believe Charlie's going to uh, high school next year. And she sat up and she looked at me and she said, what are you kidding? You're missing it all. You leave, it's dark. You come home, it's dark. And the truth of the matter is I had become my father. My dad was a workaholic. He dedicated his life to um, Price Waterhouse. And he um, he came to maybe one uh, Little League baseball game of mine because he was always working Saturdays, Sundays. Um, at, but then again, sometimes I think maybe it was because I really, I, w I wasn't an A player. You know, maybe if I, maybe if I wasn't a bench warmer or or maybe if I was a first stringer, he would have been at my games. But no, all kidding aside, dad work. I had become my dad. And the truth of the matter is I would go to work. I'd fall asleep on the train and I'd wake up and I wouldn't know if I was going to work or coming home from work. And. That evening when my wife sat up in bed was pivotal because we were like ships passing in the night and I could have been a statistic. I'm going to be married 33 years next June. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go in and I'm going to tell them I'm leaving. I have no idea what I'm going to do, but I'm going to let them know after October 15th. And this was in June. I'm going to leave the firm. And, um, you know, I ended up leaving the firm. Um, I took a month off because I had just built, you know, the million dollar interest only McMansion on a hill in, you know, mm -hmm. uh, bedroom community. And all of a sudden, you know, my wife did everything. So the final punch list, this was like the one year walk. I said, I'm going to take care of it. So I took a month off. And then the first Monday in November, November 3rd of 2008. So we're coming up on our 15 year anniversary. I formed an LLC. I picked up the phone. I started calling managing partners and I told them that I'm doing mergers and acquisitions. You're back in the game. I'm back in the game. And, uh, and, and I decided to do that because one of my former partners who had left my firm called me up and he said, Phil, we're 3 million. You know, I left as a solo. I joined two other guys with 12 people. I can't take on a new client. I'm having trouble hiring staff. Maybe you could introduce us 
to managing partners. So I started doing that. But then I realized deal cycle was so long. Um, I wasn't going to be able to pay my million dollar interest only mortgage. So I started doing some lateral partner talent acquisition. And I realized, okay, that's going to be how, you know, every two or three months we earn a fee. I'm able to pay my bills. Now I will tell you, I've often thought of doing like an infomercial, you know, like, Come visit my house. You know, you see the guy in front of the Ferrari. I don't have a Ferrari, but, you know, the swimming pool, you know, I'm still in the house. Despite the fact that along the way, I got notice of foreclosure, a notice of intent to foreclose from the bank at least a half a dozen times. I fall three months behind. I close a deal. I would then get caught up and I'd be good for three months. And then, you know, it was those peaks and valleys, you know, and uh, I would come home from a great day in the city, which was, I got to meet a managing partner today. And he said, he wants to work with me. And my wife would be like, you know, the movie, Jerry Maguire, show me the money, money. Jerry, show me the money. Did you make a bank deposit today? Well, maybe I'm trying, I'm trying, you know, Um, but we would go back to her. She'd be like, you need to get a job. And I'd say, I'm building a business. And she'd say, you need to get a job. And then my old firm called me up one day and they said, oh, you know, because they were had become a client of, of ours. And the managing partner was retiring. And the two guys that ultimately became co-managing partners, they each had like $4 million books of business. And they were started running the firm on Saturdays, you know, in the Long Island office. And they asked me if I would come back, bring me in as a partner. When I was COO, I wasn't a partner. And my dream was always to be a partner in a CPA firm. And I still, to this day, I have the contracts in my drawer. And it was going to be a very nice retirement benefit. And by the way, they recently folded into Citroen Cooperman. So there was a very big payday. And I'm sure mm-hmm. I would have participated in that. But ultimately, I told them, you know what? I love the one to many, helping many. You know, when I was at that firm, I always felt like, what good am I really doing in the world? I'm helping 48 partners become extremely wealthy. But then I would say, okay, we have 400 people. They're all putting food on their table. You can measure things different ways. But, you know, I truly found my uh, my my passion. I mean, I love helping people. Sometimes people think I'm crazy. I was on the phone with a managing partner yesterday you know, we recently launched this new offshoring company where we're consulting with firms and our chief fractional uh, outsourcing officer, as we call them, instead of CEO. That's a company we started, Impact uh, uh, Global Solutions Group. We're the only uh, firm uh, consulting with CPA firms how to do offshoring and outsourcing the right way. And when I told the managing partner, when we're done reviewing the contracts or introducing you to the right offshoring partners, the conversation is going to go something like this. How much do you think our services were worth? You want to pay us $1,500, $2,500, whatever you think is right. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And I'm like, well, we're helpers. Now, the truth of the matter is that company, because we're doing business with South Africa, Mexico, Vietnam, the Philippines, uh, um, Colombia, and there's one more, obviously, India. Um, So there's six countries. And 
the people that we ultimately bring the business to, they share, you know, they give us a referral fee. So it's not about when we first got into the uh, offshoring business, we have a partnership with a company in the Philippines. We had heard Sue Coffee at the AICPA say that there aren't going to be enough auditors to go around with all these PPPs and governmental grants. So we went to the Philippines. We formed a partnership with a company that had almost 100 people deployed to a charter accountancy firm in Australia. Now, they get their CPA in the Philippines. They were having trouble breaking into the U.S. We now have 100 people deployed at 10 CPA firms. And when we did it, we did it in such a way that we weren't going to mark it up and make crazy money on it. It was sort of like McDonald's selling a billion hamburgers, a numbers game, because we wanted to give back to the profession and in a time when it was so difficult for firms to attract talent. So do we do we work and do what we do to make money? Yes, but you know what? To me, the end all and be all is when I work with someone five years from now when they say, I'm so glad I met you. You changed my life. And I think that's what we do. We change people's lives. And uh, I'm proud that we've now grown. I went from where when I started in 2008, it was me. In 2010, I had a stay-at-home mom, mom join me to help with recruiting. And then in 2015, I said, you know what? I'm leaving so much on the table and I'll never be able to sell this because it was all about me and you know my relationships. When we now have built the single largest advisory firm for CPA firms in the nation, together with our C-suite impact group of companies, we have 50 people. It's no longer the Phil Whitman show. And like most firms, yeah, it's Whitman Transition Advisors. We'll probably at some point in time become WTA or you know, C-suite impact uh, transition advisors because it's not about me. Um, it's really about the team. And uh, I, I want to perpetuate the help that we're giving and really, um, you know, we, we need to boost this profession up and, I think there are great things that are going on. And, uh, you know, we all have to be the mouthpieces to get that out. I feel like you've read our script. You kind of hit all the high <laughs> points. And it, I want to highlight a couple of those. Yeah, at some point, you're probably going to be a client of Whitman Transition Advisors to get you transitioned out, which is kind of ironic. But I think one of the things you said earlier that I want to bring back, which which is important for our listeners, is that you were fortunate enough that you had the accounting, tax, advisory experience. So you were able to navigate your own journey, kind of doing it yourself. You probably got some help from other CPAs, I would imagine a little bit, but mostly you kind of knew it because of your experience. But most entrepreneurs don't have that experience. They just have their idea. It is very important, and I think you would agree, that if you're an entrepreneur, you really need not just a tax or accountant person, you need that advisor that's bringing you value, that's going to show you the secrets and the shortcuts. And you ultimately had that, but... Our, our listeners, that's that's the secret sauce generally because just in the tax savings alone and the efficiencies of your operations, if you're you're making a hundred thousand a year and somebody can save you fifteen, twenty grand in taxes, that is literally that's life changing for somebody at that level. If you're making a million a year and somebody can save you a couple hundred thousand, that's life changing. That value, you people think you pay for that, it's an expense, but like you said, it's really an investment. So I think that's one thing that you you touched on, but again, you did it from a different perspective because you kind of knew all those things, right? You've already had the experience, but most most 
most people, entrepreneurs, don't have that. Um, the second and, and entrepreneurs you know, need that team, correct. and 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 Glenn, I frequently call that. How do you give yourself a raise? Mm-hmm. You can give yourself a raise just by bringing in the right advisor, the right team around you. You know, you need someone to be the quarterback. You know, great ideas. You know, look, even myself, I never could have done this myself. Yeah, you know, I have I have a partner. Who, yeah, there were things, you know, I'm, I'm an outside guy, I'm a visionary, but you know what, all the fine details that help you get where you really want to go to, I'm, I'm not that, you know, guy on the ground, the detail guy. So, you know, there's complementary skill sets and you need that team. You need that quarterback that can help you put that team together. Yeah, your, your biggest expense it, there's really two things. It's like how much you spend in your business knowing well, you think it's going to keep working, but it might not. You need to pivot and change it, right? So you keep dumping, pull money out of retirement. A lot of entrepreneurs do that. Before you do that, have that evaluation, the time, money, effort for the results to know that take the emotion out of it. Look at it like a business. Your advisor can help you with that. Your biggest expense if you're making money is taxes. You can get a raise without having to change anything other than just being more efficient, right? So so I think you've touched, you've hit that one on the head. The second thing you did, which was really cool, is, you know, you get so caught up in, you know, our parents, they just work because that's what they did. They didn't know any better. I mean, that's how it went. We were lucky in our generation. Again, you're way older than I am, so it's a little different for you. I'm totally messing with you. You're almost qualified for Social Security here soon. But uh, in April, yes. Yeah, get it, give it up. So what will happen is that we were fortunate enough to learn that, wait a minute, that's how we started our careers and then we realized, wait a minute, that's that's not cool. You were lucky that you were able to listen to the people around you that said, hey, you got to back off because this is not sustainable. And for whatever reason, nobody, an entrepreneur doesn't like what, doing what they're told. They like doing what they want to do, right? But however it was marketed to you, you were able to go, wait a minute, that's right. And again, you're probably working harder, but you're working smarter, I'm guessing, and the hours are just different. It's not the grind. It's the bigger picture things. And as an entrepreneur, you made the transition from doing business to building businesses. And that's way different. That's way more funner. You, you hit it on the head. Went from doing everything to focusing on the highest value use of my time by, by bringing in people who, you know, all those other things much better in their hands than mine. And yes, working on the business as opposed to in the business. What, what age were you when you made that transition, when it finally hit you with the two by four to the forehead? When did that happen? Go, wait a minute, what am I doing here? Glenn and his HR questions. I love it. No, so, so, so that is a great question. So do you remember the days, Glenn, when it was in vogue to say, I'm amazing at multitasking? You know, oh, yeah. I, I I was like better than the, the, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey clown that was, you know, juggling five or six balls. Mm-hmm. You know, I had 20 things up in the air. But the reality is everyone now knows that when you got 20 things up in the air, you know, you got 20 things in various stages of uh, disarray and incompletion. You know, you, you're supposed to single mind things. So I would say I'm 61. I would say it was during the beginning of the pandemic. Well, 
going back to 2015, when I hired a strategic coach and that strategic coach became my partner, I think that's when it really was triggered that, you know what, I, I could bring someone on at, you know, $15 an hour to do some of the stuff that I'm focusing on and I could go out and be making, you know, six or $7,000 an hour. Um, obviously, um, you know, when you, when you do a recruiting deal and you earn, you know, $135,000 fee and, you know, but obviously you spend so much time, you're not earning any fee, but in any event, the more time I could spend talking to partners, the more time I could spend talking to managing partners about their goals, as opposed to, hey, Joe, you know, you need to put an invoice in so that I can pay you, you know, uh, but but the reality is, you know, working on the business, the quadrant two stuff, you know, if you think about Covey, quadrant one being, you know, urgent and important, uh, quadrant two being important but not urgent, that's what really propels business success focusing on those quadrant two things. And I think many entrepreneurs, they're so entrenched in the business because they don't have the resources and the help that they need so that they can focus on the business. So so the question that comes to mind then is two things. One, everybody listening, it's never too late, too late to make that transition. Look at this guy. He's been doing this, quote, a way for 40 years. And all of a sudden in the last five years, the light switch clicks and here he goes. What do you think? It was it a life-changing event that pushed you that direction? Was it the sudden realization, the aha moment? But what, you know, there's a trigger. And, and what we're trying to do is figure out all these other entrepreneurs that are out there that are struggling. How do we get them to open up that curtain and go, oh my God, that's the answer over there? I had no idea. How do you get them to take that step over there? What was your kick that said, oh my God, this is crazy? Was it because of the hours? What, what do you think it was? You know, I think for a long time, I resisted, you know, my, my, my partner was telling me, you know, you really need to get an administrative assistant. You know, I was, I, I grew up in a law firm arena where, you know, the attorneys, you know, they did their own memos. It wasn't like every attorney had a legal secretary. I mean, there was a pool of them that, you know, 20 attorneys shared, um, you know, obviously there are other environments where, you know, it was like a one-to-one -one relationship, you know, or an attorney and associate sharing. So, so, so the reality is, you know, I, for the longest time, believed that I'm self-sufficient. I could, I could handle this. I could do the billing. I, the reality is I was living the e-myth. You know, I had my administrative days. I had my sales days. I had my work days. But the reality is when you try and do it all on your own, you're doing yourself a disservice. And yes, when you first start out, the first year, you know, you do that because that's what you do when you start a business. But I think if you get yourself educated and realize that you got to put together that team and short-term pain, long-term gain, yeah, you'll make a little bit less. You know, it will cost you money. But, you know, the old adage, you know, it takes money to make money, you know, and, and the reality is you got to make that investment. And, and what I could tell you, there were years where once I made that decision, like I could have put my arms around and not done that and made a lot more money. But the reality was it was time to, I, I think it's just believe that it's possible. Hmm. 
you know, and, and sometimes it's going against, you know, because you're so accustomed to, I don't need it. I can do it. But the reality is, you know, once you get into your zone and I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, after October 16th, the, you know, the tax filing deadline, I just looked at the calendar. I said, there's 75 days until we ring in the new year. And I made a public goal to my, to my entire team. I said, in the next 75 days, even though I don't work Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, I, I three-day weekend every week, um, I'm going to do 75 meetings between now and the end of the year. And then I said, okay, 75 merger meetings. And I want 37 of them to be with new potential sellers or people that are looking to take an investment. And um, I made that announcement publicly to the team. We are tracking it. Um, I think I have 46 meetings to go between now and the end of the year. We figured out I have two meetings a day that I need to do to achieve that goal. And it's not just any meeting. It's meetings with people that have raised their hand and said, I want to do this. Now, if I was focusing on all the other, oh, man, I got I got to do payroll and I got to do this and I got to do that. I'd be lucky if I got in, you know, you know, one or two meetings a week, you know. So I, I think getting in that zone and, and I think, you know, have a goal, have a goal and um, and write those goals down because most people don't write them down. You, you know what, Glenn, I think um, the difference between like a true entrepreneur and, and someone that's just uh, in a business, like I'm sure you see partners in CPA firms and many of them, and I meet with plenty of them, they don't act like business owners. Never. They, 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 they act like, you know, they're a glorified employee that makes a lot of money. They've never known what it's like to, oh man, I got to call this client, that client, and the other client because I don't have enough money to make payroll this week. And oh, since I don't have enough, I'm not going to take payroll. Uh, and, and I think for the entrepreneur, I think they're really has to be a, um, you know, that internal drive and that mindset that says, um, I can do this. I think too many people get off the merry-go-round too soon. They don't realize exactly how close they are to success. So close. And they, and they give up and they quit. And, um, you know, there's so many people you, you know, know whether you call it a failure or not. No, we don't like that. F no, word. we never use the F word. That that we can't use the word. It's funny. The accountants. We always. Po I love poking fun of accountants being one and all. And uh, Julie, she gets it. I get a lot of uh, abuse on her on my behalf of being one. But accountants are great. We just do whatever we did last year, and that's what we do. And we we think like accountants. We don't think like entrepreneurs and business owners. And we truly are. And if we operate our business like that, it's going to be a better experience for our team. It's going to be a better experience for the entrepreneurs or our clients. And so you just got to change mind. We know the secrets. We watched our clients do it. We advise them. We tell them what to do. We literally give them the blueprint. But a lot of times we don't take it ourselves. So that was good that you did that. And can you just imagine, it's not a regret, but can you just imagine back in 1991, the internet was a thing and you could get all the information you could get today, back in 91, where we would be today. But oh. 
it, and again, it, it's just times change, but today there's really no excuse for anybody to struggle like this. They just have to ask the question and want to find the answer. That That's it. As entrepreneurs, just seek that advice. It's out there. It's everywhere. They just, before we didn't have it. Like if you didn't have a bunch of people you went to Harvard with, you're not going to learn the secrets of what the wealthy people do. Today, no. you go find it out in two seconds. So I have, I have two questions for you as we're ending our time here. My first one is, Phil, what is your superpower? I would say my superpower is the ability to take a bad situation and see the silver lining in the cloud and and, and just not let it... um, hamper whether it's a relationship um my dad used to tell me when price waterhouse he was in the new york office when there was a client that they were on the verge of losing they would send my dad in because dad was blessed with diplomacy intact and 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 dad i would say he wasn't like me in terms of being an entrepreneur, he was at Pricewaterhouse his entire career and he loved what he did and he loved every minute of it, but he was the guy filled with diplomacy intact. And I think I was blessed. It must be genetic. Um, I talk to some of his old partners now and they're like, oh, if I close my eyes, it's like I'm talking to your dad. Um, so I, I think it's, and I have, to, you know, every once in a while, whether it's a dissatisfied client or a client that thinks he's dissatisfied, mm-hmm. but doesn't realize that there are things that he's not doing, um, or she's not doing to, uh, to make things happen, whether it's getting a deal across the finish line. So I think it's my, my real strengths are shoot bullets through me. They bounce right off. Everything rolls off my shoulders. I I have, and my dad coined this term. I don't know if you ever have heard this. And unfortunately, my dad passed away in 21. Uh, he, he was my superhero. But um, he said, because he talked about stress. And he said, I'm worried about you. You work so hard. You work harder than anyone I know. You need to slow down. So, um, you know, he said, stress is going to kill you. And I said, Dad, I have no stress, absolutely no stress. He said, come on, Philip, everyone has stress. He said, ah, I got it. He said, you have enjoyable stress. And the reality is I have enjoyable stress. I love what I do. I love every minute of my day. I never feel like I'm working, you know. So when my wife says to me, you know, when are you thinking about retiring? And she's caring for her elderly mom who has dementia, you know, so we all got things. I said, I don't know, but as long as you're, you know, caring for your mom, you know, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, But the reality is if I have my health, I mean, I could see myself doing this well into my seventies because I love what I do and there's no stress and I never feel like I'm working. I always feel like I am helping people. I'm going to start calling you uh, Winston Wolf from Pulp Fiction. You're the guy that comes <laughs> in and cleans stuff up. It's the best. So I have, I, I have one last question and you kind of answered it, but I also think you got to take it a step further for our listeners. What is your end game? 
Okay. So, so my end game, and we've already had opportunities, but have resisted. Obviously, you know, private equity and other strategics have come into the public accounting arena. And unlike, you know, the late 90s and early 2000s when, you know, American Express and H&R Block were in, I think they have the model right this time. We've seen um, degrees of success. And in a short year or two, we'll see how some of these larger private equity uh, backed firms uh, get the proverbial uh, second bite at the apple and what happens then. We've already been approached by private equity. I have told them it's too soon. Um, and I, I do believe with our C-suite impact group of companies, which is, if you want to talk about entrepreneurial, my wife keeps telling me you got to stop. Under C-suite impact, we have uh, 11 companies, everything from a fractional CFO business, which was started to help our CPA firm clients that were doing audits that, you know, couldn't do that work if their client lost the CFO. Um, you know, we don't do audit, we don't do tax. You know, we figured it would be a natural. And so we have a fractional CFO business. We have a impact business builders that helps people that are three to five years away from retirement. We have five recruiting companies. We have impact legal resources. We do the same thing in the legal arena that we do in the public accounting arena. And people say to me, God, you know, do you have time to sleep? And the reality is I'm the chairman of that group. I help them with business development. The CPA firm arena is amazing in terms of you introduce one CPA and they have a hundred or a thousand clients. Everyone wants to meet that CPA. So I think it's taking the C-suite impact group of companies. And I would say Whitman Transition Advisors, is one of those brands. It's part of the C-suite impact group of companies. And we'll do a private equity um, event. My my partner tells me we should wait until, you know, we could get a multiple that'll ultimately end up being in the 50 or $60 million range. Um, look, there's, you know, I, I, if I live another 25 years, I, I'll consider myself blessed you can never spend all that money in a lifetime. You know, um, I am very charitable. My mailman probably thinks, what's wrong with this guy? Because, you, you know, I made a mistake. You know, for last year, towards the end of the year, I said, all right, you know, I want to, you know, make a whole bunch of charitable contributions. And almost anyone that sent me, you know, a solicitation, if it seemed like a reasonable mission, I made a contribution or I made a monthly contribution and they must have sold my name because every day I get at least 20 solicitations and my wife said, you have to stop. You can't give to everybody. So then I said, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take all the ones that we get. And at the end of the week, you know, I have three sons, the five of us are going to decide which one of the 30 or 40 we got this week, we're going to make a contribution to but, you know, my, you know, I think there will be an exit. I, I think it will be with a strategic that wants to continue to have relationships with what I call the keeper of the golden goose. And that's the CPA, uh, because, you know, the, the golden goose that keeps on giving and there's such 
tremendous entrepreneurial opportunities for the CPA firm, which I believe is already on the verge of becoming a multidisciplinary consulting organization. Um, and uh, I'm just quite surprised all these strategics took so long to wake up and realize. But it's kind of with the with the baby boomer uh, owners of CPA firms, it's the white knight that's coming in at the 11th hour and there's never been a better time to be a CPA or CPA firm that hasn't planned well for transition. But I, I believe like the CPAs we work with, uh, our exit will be with a strategic. I think Julie's got you trapped. Go ahead, Julie. So Phil, I, I love your answer. It's very well thought out and I don't not think that's going to happen, but I also don't think Phil Whitman can stop after that exit strategy. I think there's something else on the horizon as long as you have your health and your your drive and ambition. I don't think that's going away. So I ain't going to happen. I can't wait to hear about that exit, and then I can't wait to uh, revisit your you your next thing. Sucked back in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's in oh, my DNA. That's it. Well, this, I, this has been wonderful. I I really appreciate you bringing up, uh, you know, a lot of thoughts going through my head in having this conversation with both of you. Well, you've been, Thank you enough, Julie and Glenn. Absolute pleasure meeting you. Well, you too. We've been a wonderful guest. We appreciate your insight. And I, and I know our, our, our um, listeners are going to glean a lot of nuggets out of this one. So we really appreciate it. And I'm sure our paths will cross again um, as you keep, uh, keep growing and doing great things. So we wish you the best. Thank you so much, and same to all of you. At Harper & Company CPA Plus, we just don't care about the numbers. We care about helping you tap into the greatness of your entrepreneurial journey. You deserve a partner who has helped hundreds of businesses go from paying the bills to building the business and lifestyle of their dreams. Go to our website and download our free guide entitled Entrepreneurial Success Formula, how to avoid managing your business from your bank account. The link is in this episode's show notes.